Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, we continue our series, The Crossroad, today with a message entitled, I Once Was Blind, But Now I See. So let's turn in our Bibles to John chapter 9, verses 1 to 17, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. John Newton, the slave ship captain who became a Christian, famously wrote the lines, I once was blind, but now I see. Of course, he didn't mean that he was once physically blind, but he did mean that once he was blind to his own sin. He was blind to the fact that he was once a moral reprobate, trading human souls for financial gain. You know, in those days, it had not occurred to Newton that what he was doing was wrong. The culture in which he lived thought the slave trade was a necessary part of the economy. And so Newton simply did what he needed to do to earn a good living. At least that's what he thought. And even immediately after his conversion, it had not yet occurred to him that what he was doing was morally wrong. But the Holy Spirit worked in his life, and Newton not only became an effective pastor and a hymn writer, but he's the only former slave trading captain who testified before the British House of Commons about the evils of the slave trade. My wife once led a woman to Christ who, soon after her conversion, made an appointment to come and see me. She came into my study and told me that she knew that I wasn't a priest, but she had come to make a confession. I said, surely. And then she opened up her heart, and in the midst of a flood of tears, she told me she had had a number of abortions. Now, to be sure, Kathy, that is my wife, had never spoken to her about abortion. You know, all the while, they were simply speaking about Christ and the gospel. And furthermore, this woman had never thought twice about her own abortions. But now that Christ was alive in her and now that he had opened her eyes, she was overwhelmed with shame, just like Newton. Remember, Newton said that it was amazing grace that saved a wretch like him. It's not just grace that saves, but it's also grace that reveals the wretchedness of our condition. Yeah, once coming to Christ, everyone testifies, I once was blind, but now I see. In our study of John's Gospel, we've come to chapter 9. Jesus is still in Jerusalem, and it's the Feast of Tabernacles, or the Feast of Booths. It's now over. You may remember that I made mention of the fact that everything in the book of John keeps coming up in the number 7. And on that note, I made mention that John records seven miracles of Jesus, or as John likes to call them, seven signs. Well, they're signs because although the miracle happened exactly as John recorded them, John wants us to know that the miracle is pointing toward a greater reality. It's a, it's a sign. It tells us of the identity of Jesus, and it tells us about genuine faith. Well, in John chapter 9, we come to the sixth of the seven signs in the book. And this one is the healing of a blind man. And even though the miracle literally happened, it's remarkable how many spiritual lessons we can take from this one sign. And here, as we're going to see, John wants us to know that Jesus came to take away moral blindness and to replace it with sight. So let's begin to read. I'm reading John 9, 1 to 7. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. 
Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. So let's talk for a moment about infant blindness. You know, in our world, about 75% of the world's blind children live in the poorest regions of the earth. That is, these are parts of the world where medications that might have prevented the blindness simply not available. Now, that fact might give us a sense of what the ancient world was like, where, you know, the medical miracles that we now take for granted were simply not available. Blind children, while it's uncommon in our culture in our day, well, it was frequent then. And so it was common for people who believed in God to ask the question, why? And the answer, sin. Sin is the cause of physical maladies of any sort. Now, of course, that's both true and at the same time, extremely misleading. See, on the one hand, all sickness and all human maladies are a part of the world because of sin. You know, the rabbis in Jesus' day taught exactly that. They pointed out that Adam's sin had brought a curse on the human race. And furthermore, you know, the New Testament agrees. Romans 5 verse 12 says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. See, sin and death belong together. And furthermore, death is the consequence of the breaking down of our bodies. And sickness is simply a symptom that that's occurring. Indeed, we could go beyond that. There are times in the Bible where sickness is the immediate result of sin. 1 Corinthians 11, Paul speaks about those in the congregation who were sick and others had died. Why? Because they had taken part of the Lord's table in an unworthy manner. Ah, but there's a large but here. Listen to the accusation of Job's miserable comforters. It's found in Job 4, verse 7. Eliaphas says, Who that was innocent ever perished? Or where were the upright cut off? That is, Job's so-called three friends were telling Job that the only reason he was suffering was because of his personal sin. And from the book of Job, we learn that's untrue. Job was a righteous man, and yet he was suffering. So the question of the disciples, well, it's an interesting question. Who sinned? Explain this. Now, since the man was born blind, how could he have been guilty of sinning? And yet, in Jesus' day, there were rabbis who did teach that babies could sin in the womb. And so they would have argued that the sin of an unborn child can be so great that God would afflict that child with blindness. And the disciples of Jesus were men of their culture, and they simply bought into that line. Because sin brings death, it must mean that every single illness is the result of a personal sin. You know, well, thoughts have consequences. Notice the disciples not moved with compassion, but moved to argue who's responsible for this mess. They simply assume a one-to-one -one relationship between any given sin and human suffering. I know that's crazy, but it turns out there are people today who think exactly like that. They see someone suffering, and they immediately assume sin. And then Jesus responds. Now, I must point out a little grammatical detail in this passage. It's really important. You can understand Jesus' response that this happened, that the works of God might be displayed in one of two ways. It might be a result clause, which would be translated as, this happened with the result that the works of God would now be displayed. That is, now that this has happened, this sets the stage for the miracle I'm about to do. 
Or this might be a purpose clause. This happened for a purpose so that the works of God should be displayed. I hope you see the difference. Is this man's blindness simply the occasion for a miracle? Or was the coming miracle the reason he was blind in the first place? That is, was he blind so that Jesus would display his glory in the man at this important moment? Now, the grammar itself can't resolve this. So we don't know whether or not it's a purpose clause or a result clause. So we can't understand exactly the reason for the blindness, but there are several things that should become clear. This man was not blind because of some personal sin, neither he nor his parents. Second, we do know that his blindness is a part of God's long-term plan for him. God had a purpose. Well then, that opens the door for a bit of an application. We're going to see as we continue to study this passage that the blindness of this man actually has a relationship to the moral blindness in all of us. What do we make of our own moral blindness? See, in the case of all moral blindness, we should know that we were all born into moral blindness. And furthermore, our moral blindness can serve a purpose. It will either serve the purpose of our condemnation before the judgment seat, or it will serve the purpose of giving God glory on the day he opens our eyes and gives us sight. But in any case, our moral blindness is within the sweep of God's control of our lives. There's something else that's true about moral blindness. Just like physical blindness, moral blindness means we can't see with our eyes. We're blind, and that means we're incapable of seeing. Unless our blindness is healed, we will carry on in the dark. That's exactly what sin does. All sinners are incapable of seeing their own sin. That's why they're blind. The overwhelming testimony of those who have been born again is suddenly they become aware of just how profoundly sinful they have always been. Prior to their conversion, they weren't aware of it at all. See, every convert in some way is just like John Newton. Suddenly comes an awareness. I once was blind, now I see. I was a moral reprobate, now I have been forgiven. That's the miracle. Have you heard? Back to the Bible Canada and Laugh Again are inviting you on a cruise. February 7th to the 16th, 2020, we'll be setting sail for the Southern Caribbean. And we want you to join us for a nine-night cruise adventure that will leave you not only physically refreshed, but spiritually as well. Experience ports of call, including Aruba, Bonaire, and Curacao. Dr. John Newfeld will be joining us, providing amazing Bible teaching that will inspire and deepen your walk with Jesus. Phil Calloway will lift your spirits and perhaps make you laugh in a way you've never laughed in years and be encouraged by the music of friends Shane and Angela Weeb. It's a fantastic opportunity for a vacation while experiencing great Bible teaching, laughter, and fellowship. So for more information, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or head over to backtothebibletours.ca. That's 1-800-663-2425 or visit us at backtothebibletours.ca.
I wonder if you think I'm over-spiritualizing this story of the healing of the blind man. Shouldn't I just be satisfied to say, look, this is the story of the healing of a blind man, a demonstration of Christ's power to bring mercy to this man. After all, not only was he blind, but in his day, as in ours, blindness was often accompanied by poverty, shorter lifespan, so his life was miserable in every way. Ah, but I do feel justified in using this blindness as a symbol for our sin. Go, if you will, to the end of the chapter, that is to verse 40. And there the Pharisees say, Ha, we get what you're saying, and we're deeply offended by it. You are implying that we also are blind. See, the Pharisees recognize that Jesus himself used this story to speak of our sinful condition. But we'll get to that part later. For now, notice again verses 4 and 5. Jesus said, We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Now that phrase, as long as I am in the world, well, it speaks of Jesus' earthly ministry. The night that's coming speaks of his crucifixion. That is, when Jesus was hanging on the cross, when he said, it is finished, and then bowed his head to die, at that very moment, the day was over and the night had arrived. And so from that perspective, knowing that the cross was now just six months away, Jesus is conscious of just how short his time on this earth is. Now, that doesn't mean there'll be no miracles after he's gone. We know that, you know, he's going to rise from the dead and then the Holy Spirit will come on his followers. And for instance, when we get the book of Acts, we'll find a man who was lame from birth and Peter heals him instantly in the name of Jesus. So the miracles do carry on. But this is the key. While Jesus was physically on the earth, he is an extraordinary bright light. He is the very radiance of God. He is something the earth has never seen. And this day was about to end. The things that Jesus said and did would never be seen again. He's calling his disciples to him and he's saying, we must do this work now for this day is almost over. In other words, this is not just a healing. This is a display of the light of God in a world of darkness. I will go away and men and women will not see me again. And then having said that, he spits on the ground and he makes mud and puts it in the man's eyes. Now, you look at that and you say, why? Why doesn't he simply say, you know, rise up and walk, as he said in the past, or be healed or see clearly? But Jesus does everything for a reason. So what's his reason for this? You know, I do know that in the beginnings when the church was still young, Many of the church fathers, that is, the men who were trained by the disciples of Jesus, well, they saw in this act an allusion to Genesis 2, verse 7. You know, that passage says, Then the Lord God formed the man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. That is, since we know that God made man from the dust of the earth, what's happening here in John 9, said the early church fathers, is that Jesus is symbolizing the beginning of a new creation. He has come to make all things new. He's come to announce the coming of a new creation where sin will be no more. Now, that might be the right interpretation. And if it is, then clearly Jesus is announcing that he has come to make all things new. So that's the beginning of his public ministry. It's the end of darkness and light coming into the world. And with that, Jesus sends the blind man with a mud patch over his eyes, go wash in the pool of Siloam. Well, that pool, which, by the way, has recently been excavated in Israel, 
Well, it was initially the part of a building project that was undertaken by King Hezekiah. Hezekiah had built a tunnel from the Gihon Spring. It was the only spring of water near Jerusalem. And so the tunnel actually transported water from the Gihon Spring right into the Pool of Siloam. And the reason why it was called sent is because the water was sent or it was conducted from another place. That is, it was sent from Gihon to the Pool of Siloam. Again, it's hard not to see the symbolism here. Jesus is saying, I have come to make all things new, and they are made new when you go wash yourself in the one who was sent from another place. I was sent from the Father's presence. There really is a lot of symbolism here. At any rate, the man washes and immediately he sees. His blindness is gone. So let's keep reading, verses 8 to 12. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? And some said, It is he. Others said, No, but he is like him. He kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, Then how were your eyes opened? And he answered, The man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, Where is he? He said, I don't know. Now, you can understand this reaction. They see a blind man begging, and now they see a man completely transformed. Rather than begging in a world of darkness, he now appears, well, we're going to see it more clearly as the passage goes on. He's sharp. He's got his wits around him. He's, he's able to take on his detractors. Oh, he's not going to back down to anyone. He's fully engaged. He's ready to enter into dialogue. I mean, the contrast between what he used to be and what he now is, well, it's so dramatic. People can't even put those two images together. I do think it's an illustration of conversion. I have, you know, what is now a delightful memory. Years ago, I met a woman who had known me before my conversion. And she said, really? You're a Christian? Were you a Christian back then? And I said, no. And she said, wow, you sure are different. She was saying, you're not the same guy. (laughs) Indeed, I'm not. All glory be to God. I once was blind, but now I see. But that event, as I have hinted, leads to the question of what all that means. And that event brings in the Pharisees. That's because everyone's talking about it. So let's read verses 13 to 17. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, he put mud on my eyes and I washed and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such things? And there was a division among them. So they said again to the blind man, what do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? He said, he's a prophet. Now, this is the first time that we're told that this was done on the Sabbath. And now it becomes an issue. The man who is healed is brought to be examined by the religious leaders. Now, it might seem strange to us that this was done, but this was a usual feature in that culture. You might remember, for instance, from Leviticus 17, that if anyone was healed of a skin disease, that person was to present himself to a priest. And so it wasn't unusual at any momentous moment in a person's life that you would seek out religious authorities. How do we understand what's just happened? What do these things mean? And the religious authorities would tell you. Now we learn something that John has withheld from us until this moment. This man was healed on the Sabbath. And that fact, to anyone who knows the controversies around Jesus, well, that becomes a key matter. 
So the people were asking, I mean, what do we make of a healing that happened on the Sabbath? But we also know if we peek ahead to verse 22, that the Pharisees had already determined that if anyone comes to the conclusion that Jesus is the Messiah, that that person would be excommunicated from the household of Israel. So here's the man who has been healed, and everyone's asking, how did this happen? And so since the man was healed on the Sabbath, and since the Pharisees had said, look, the man who healed him can't be the Messiah, well, who's Jesus and, and, and what has happened here? And so against that background, the next thing that happens, well, it's the impossible. They ask the man who was healed, the man who'd never met Jesus before that moment, who do you think Jesus is? As we're going to see later, that takes upon itself an ominous tone. If you go back to John chapter 5, you're going to remember that there was a man who had been an invalid for 38 years, and in Jerusalem on the Sabbath, Jesus healed him. And back then, the religious leaders put a great deal of pressure on that man. And then immediately, that man who had been healed, in order to save his own skin, ratted Jesus out and, in effect, became an accuser of Jesus. So the easiest thing to do now is to get this man to act just like the invalid had done some time before. But the man who was blind but now can see doesn't act that way. He doesn't know much about Jesus, but this he knows. He's a prophet. He says that about Jesus, I know that much. And that's the thing about people who once were blind but now can see. They can see enough not to turn against the one who gave them sight. For if it had not been for him, they would still be walking in darkness. I guess the bottom line here, John, is Christ illuminates the darkness in our lives, and all of a sudden we're exposed and we, we begin to understand a little bit more about our sinfulness. <laughs> you know, that's a wonderful thing. Um, you know, I began by saying that it's not only the grace of God that frees us from our sin, but it is God's grace that opens up our eyes to help us to see the sin. And it allows us to renounce it and to put our faith and trust fully in Christ. It's a wonderful thing, I keep saying, to have the Lord open our eyes. Uh, at first, it, it, you know, we feel, oh no, I mean, I, I'm a lot more sinful than I had ever imagined. But after a while, we say, oh my, Christ is far more gracious than I had ever imagined, and then all glory goes to him. Thanks so much, John. And thanks for joining us today right here on Back to the Bible Canada where we teach the Bible. Connecting God's people to God's Word in our world today is critical. And Truth and Life Today with Dr. John Newfeld engages timely issues of life and faith so important for God's people to engage and discuss. Special guests each week examine critical issues that impact our lives and our journey with Jesus. So join us on Truth and Life today by tuning in on Vision TV every Sunday at 12.30 Eastern or subscribe to the Back to the Bible Canada YouTube channel or simply visit us online at backtothebible.ca and send us an email at info at backtothebible.ca to let us know that you're watching. If you'd like to learn more or share a gift to support the ministry of Truth and Life today or any of the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada, would you call us today at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. 
That's 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.